Hello listeners, this is Tonner Jackson with Creative Destruction Lab, and this is CDL Mentor Series, short conversations with the fellows, associates, and scientists that make up our community here at CDL, and today we are featuring Ray Muzika. Ray was originally trained as an emergency room medical doctor when shortly after graduating, he co-founded a video game studio called BioWare with his fellow classmate, Greg Zeschuk. Bioware quickly grew to be a studio well regarded for creating RPGs like Baldur's Gate, Star Wars, Knights of the Old Republic, Mass Effect, and many more. When Ray had left Bioware in 2012, it was in the Video Game Hall of Fame, and as a division of Electronic Arts, it was grossing close to half a billion dollars of revenue annually and employing over 1,400 full-time employees worldwide. In this conversation, we get through a lot. We talk about strategies for hiring and attracting talent to remote, non-technical regions like Northern Alberta, scaling an organization from a handful of passionate developers to raising private equity and eventually getting acquired, and his transition out of EA and into the world of angel investing through his company, Threshold Impact, which you can find at thresholdimpact.com. If you'd like to learn more about Ray, you can follow him on Twitter at Ray Musica, or if you're visually inclined, he is a fantastic photographer, and you can find some of his photos at flickr.com slash photos slash Ray Musica. Welcome to the show, Ray. Yeah, thanks. Pleasure to be here. You know, Ray, you, you have such a fascinating career, and I hope that over the short time we'll have some time to cover at least some of it. But I wanted to start with a question that I'm sure you get a ton. What gave you the confidence on how did you transition from someone working in the medical world as a physician to developing video games? Yeah, confidence maybe not quite the right, quite right word there. I mean, it was more naivete, I think, at that point in my career. But um we had started, my, my co-founder at Bioware, uh, who's another medical doctor, Greg Zestruck, uh, we both graduated from the U of A. Uh, originally, we were three doctors, and one of us uh, went back to medical practice full-time. That was odd, yep. And then Greg and I uh, remained uh, the co-founders and you know later the CEOs and uh, then CEO president of Bioware. Um, so, I mean, we basically, we had done some medical education software when we were in med school. We graduated in 92, and we wrote... Uh, acid-based physiology simulator. We sold that to the University of Alberta. I think they gave that out to med students for the next decade. Oh, no way. Uh, we sold a gastroenterology patient simulator, Janssen Ortho. And I think they, they told us they gave that out to all the family doctors across Canada. So, you know, both projects are interesting and they both had some success, but kind of realized that um, the demand for medical education software back then at least was fairly limited, uh, at least in terms of ability to pay. Like a lot of people wanted our software, but um, nobody seemed to want to pay for it. So we realized we like software, we like business, um, and uh, you know, we growing up, we were huge fans of video games. We joked between us, we had played like every video game ever made, you know, in the '80s, uh, which might not be too far off the mark because we were pretty, pretty crazy uh, video games. <laughs> nice. um, you know, so it was kind of our hobby, and it became our career, and then our careers became, for me, my hobby. So I became uh, part-time. I did two years of full-time medical practice after I graduated, and then I became a part-time locum tenens, which means temporary replacement in Latin. So I had privileges across Northern Alberta at about 20 different hospitals. And for the next eight years after that, I would go out, you know, once a week or once every, every month or once every three months near the end uh, when I was doing my MBA uh, and, uh, and running Bioware full time. And I was just kind of doing it for fun. And, uh, you know, eventually I just had no more time to do it part time. So I, I reluctantly uh, hung up my stethoscope and, uh, and became, you know, just basically the full time uh, role was Bioware. Very cool. So I guess, and and I and I asked you sort of what gave you what gave you the confidence. I guess what was the, what was the first moment that you realized you know this is a legitimate career option or something that could you know uh, pull me from my medical career. What was sort of the first time you thought you know what we're doing here is something special, something that could have real impact um, and, and be really successful at? 
I think it, it again, naivete uh, back in those days was helpful because it never really occurred to me that it wouldn't be successful. It, uh, you know, just kind of threw myself into it. Like I tended to do with a lot of things I, I get involved in and just kind of go for it. And, uh, you know, I never really looked at medicine as a backup. It was more, uh, literally my hobby had become my career Bioware making video games and my career had become my hobby. So I was doing medicine for fun, you know, at that point. And, and also gotcha. we didn't take a salary for the first five years, uh, Greg and I from Bioware. So we were just, everything we owned was plowing back into the company. We had no external investors uh, until we got private equity 15 years in. So uh, we didn't have angels or VCs. Um, so we just kind of grew and retain earnings and everything we owned uh, personally went into the company we maxed out lines of credit and credit cards. And, and we would, I, part of the reason I was working as a doctor, uh, not just for fun, I guess it was also because I needed to pay off my mortgage, my line of credit, my, my credit cards, you know, interest, you know, the minimum payment basically each month. And I would, I would look at my bank balance and say, I got to go work as a doc this <laughs> <laughs> next, next week and you know everything i owned is in the company so it was just kind of go for it you know it never occurred to me that it wouldn't succeed right. you know we just again we just try to make games that aligned with the products that we thought consumers would want and uh you know we learned a lot um i think that's one of the things that medicine teaches you is you got to be a lifelong learner you got to surround yourself self with uh, people who are smarter than you uh, we got really lucky to to hire great team members you know smart passionate hardworking people. And that's been something that I think it stayed with me throughout all my career chapters is really just kind of work with great people, work with people who are talented and smart and passionate and open to feedback and humble. And, and uh, then you'll, you'll have a great chance of being successful. Then. Very cool. Um, yeah. So you mentioned hiring people. So just to give you a bit of a sense, I too was an avid video game player. I recently read something though that was interesting that for me was a bit of a you know a, a lens behind the curtain for video game development. I, I heard Elon Musk say that video game development is in many ways the most complex form of any form of development. And I think he was specifically referencing some of the best PayPal engineers had moved over to Blizzard in the early 2000s. It's just mind blowing to me that like a Northern Alberta group of doctors could acquire the talent pool to build what I mean many regard as being a very complex or very difficult uh, development thing. Um, yeah, it is tricky at times, yeah. I mean, we made some uh, fairly complex games, too. We, we focused the Bioware on role-playing games and massively multiplayer online games. So, you know, a lot of complexities around security and privacy and scalability on the online side. And, you know, in terms of feature sets, uh, very complex features, inter interconnected um, uh, activity chains, kind of looking everything together. Um, very elaborate uh, animations and character development. So you had to create, you know, you had to overcome the uncanny valley. So, you know, it's, yeah, tech, video games are an interesting fusion of technology and entertainment and, you know, with an unstable tech platform that's kind of being shifted underneath you all the time with consoles and PCs and right. mobile devices and, and um, a lot of, a lot of interesting challenges. And, and it, I've always thought uh, that, and observe that a lot of the advancements in some some fields in, in technology are first deployed or, or or deployed very early, at least in video games, which is interesting. You know, you have some of the rudimentary um, AI, uh, you have advancements in graphic technology and uh, virtual reality, and, and you have um, you know, uh, personalities and characters um, so that you can interact with avatars and you have a bunch of advances in user interface design as well. Analytics is a big part of uh, modern video game development as well. It's a mix of uh, qualitative and quantitative. You know, you can't right. get by only on either. But the best developers, I think, uh, they're 
they're using a fusion of, of data that they've got from their own intuition, but also very much driven by the customers. You have to observe the customers, talk to them, and, and, and see their behaviors, and analytics are a big part of that. So at BioWare, we did really all those things. And uh, now in my third career chapter as an angel investor, I never really thought that uh, the medicine and the, and the video game technology background and B2C marketing and organizational behavior and growth, you know, and structures and systems of a rapidly growing tech company, but they all, they've all come full circle and they've kind of aligned in a really interesting way now. Very cool. So, so were, were most of the folks that you were hiring, were they Alberta based? Uh, uh, Initially, yeah. Right. I mean, like, I mean, I have some interesting anecdotes. Uh, we hired, I, I was uh, hanging out with Greg uh, last week. He started a, a retail uh, uh, brewery and uh, a little comp brewery complex and a restaurant complex. So he's he's on that career chapter now. Oh, very cool. A different path, but uh, we hung out, we had dinner, and uh, we're joking about some of the the great, amazing people that we were lucky to hire early on. And, you know, back in the you know, very first years of Bioware, we didn't have a lot of money. We didn't have uh, contracts. We didn't have customers or a brand or anything. We had to build that all through launching hits and. You know, so the first couple games we did, uh, luckily they did pretty well, like uh, Shattered Steel and Baldur's Gate. Baldur's Gate was a big hit, actually. For sure. But the people we hired were, you know, basically passionate and smart and hardworking. You know, they didn't have an experience. And so, example, um, we hired a 3D modeler animator, um, and he had never turned on a computer before. And he was a really interesting personality. He still is. He's a great, great, great early stage uh, company guy. And uh, he was carving wooden hunt hunting decoys. Uh, for like ducks, you know, basically hunters and other <laughs> crazy mantle and stuff. Yeah, you could paint a little bit. So we're like, you know, we kind of squint and say, "Hey, you could be a 3D modeler and a texture." And he's like, "What's that?" And we're like, "You're hired." And, <laughs> you know, another guy um, was working in a small town, northern Alberta, Grand Prairie, and he had a comic book store. And uh, we heard this guy has a waiting list in his D and D campaign, Dungeons and Dragons. Of, of players trying to get in, you know, and he's like the, he's in demand, like he actually has a queue for, you know, this, this campaign. So we're like, hey, this person could create stories and worlds. And he's like, but I don't know how to make anything on computers. And we're like, you're hired. Um, and then uh, another fellow, um, I think he drew a sketch on a, on a napkin uh, during his interview at the restaurant. And we're like, hey, you got some great uh, nascent art talent. And, you know, and we also hired a lot of people that had, uh, formal training at Alberta College of Arts, of course, and the people that had come in, you know, the programmers all had programming background, but uh, but they typically were, you know, database companies or kind of enterprise software companies and that, but they, everyone shared this passion. You know, I think that's a, a spark. Um, it, that is a really valuable attribute to have in an early stage company and, and entrepreneurs that, that have that, I think are more likely to be successful because it holds you through the hard times. Right. We're lucky to get a lot of great people. And those people were there for, for years and years and years, and they grew and advanced and became senior senior members of the team. And many of them are actually still at Bywood. It's interesting. For sure. So you mentioned passion, and one thing that seems to be fairly universally accepted about the games Bioware has made is that the level of storytelling and emotional engagement of those video games is sort of second to none. But I've also read, you mentioned Greg, that you and Greg were both very well regarded in the video game industry for being excellent managers of people. And I, and I just wondered, when, when you reflect back on your time at Bio, BioWare, were there any specific strategies or tactics that you now reflect on that were particularly effective as you guys grew from, you know, just being a few sort of, I guess, doctors to um, managing, you know, hundreds of thousands of people? Uh, not hundreds of thousands. like oh, or, sorry, sorry, hundreds and then thousands, sorry. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. yeah, I think well, when I, just for, for context, when I retired, BioWare had about a, 
half billion annualized revenue as part of electronic arts. I was running a division of EA there as a, as a GM and SVP, but you know, that was over 20 years of growth, you know, from a, a few folks in a basement, you know, hitting our heads on the ceiling of this old sixties kind of house to, um, you know, to uh, 1400 full-time employees, 2000 people all told in, in the division area. And so obviously they went through a lot of growth and development along the way. And one of the areas I'm really passionate about is organizational behavior, you know, structures and systems and people, and uh, finding ways to uh, to align them and uh, share the vision and the values and the mission and thinking about incentive systems that reward them and communication systems that ensure everybody's aligned and, you know, making sure everybody feels valued and respected. Uh, so, you know, some of the high level concepts in there, you know, values, I think values are where I usually recommend entrepreneurs start with. What are your core values? They're going to be different for every team. They're going to be different for every business. And that's that's good. It's it's having the clarity over what they are, I think, is really sort of the right. important point. And it's not easy to determine right out of the gate. Sometimes they evolve a bit. When we started by where we were just focusing on quality. Um, but then we realized, you know, there's quality for our customers and there's quality for our employees. We want to make sure there's work-life balance and we want to make sure we make great games. So we... We broke it into quality in the workplace and quality in our products you know, for each of those two stakeholders. And then we realized there's a third stakeholder, uh, which wasn't as obvious at the beginning because we didn't have any investors other than, you know, the founders and all. We ha- every employee had shares. So we wanted to make sure our, our options, every, everybody in the company, right, regardless of their level, uh, we wanted to make them feel like they're owners. So they all had options um, and they got topped up as they did well and advanced. And and they all, you know, a lot of them did really well out of the, the, the exit we had, which was a, um, a pretty pretty good one. Right. Uh, so, you know, that we developed a third core value around entrepreneurship, which was for our shareholders, for investors. And those three core values are how we made tough decisions. And uh, it's really when the shit hits the fan that uh, that the core values come into play. You could play lip service to them uh, and pay lip, lip service to them. But it's really about uh, using them uh, to make tough decisions. For example, when you have a crunch time and you have to get a product out the door because you have a, a big release date, you mar- a lot of marketing dollars have been invested in it. Uh, how do you maintain quality of life? How do you maintain the work-life balance? How do you make it up to your team afterwards? So we talked openly about that, and uh, we tried to find ways that our teams would accept and were aligned around. And we had a quality of life, work balance uh, policy that we developed. Uh, you know, after a few of these crunch periods, where everybody was getting families and realizing they couldn't sustain this, and we we're like, we don't want to lose these people. These people are our lifeblood. These are this is how we're able to to do what we're doing. The creativity and the leadership and the knowledge and the experience so we tried to develop a way to balance those core values and then entrepreneurship the same way you know like um sometimes you have to do a little bit more for your customers and it doesn't always pay off immediately in a short-term return so you have to think long term and think about how do you support your customers and invest a bit more in your product in order to get the long-term brand building and uh, do the right thing and if you do that right you know for for all your stakeholders then you get more loyalty so that's usually the starting point and then you know the vision uh, where I think where we evolved to is create, deliver, and evolve the most emotionally engaging games in the world. Right. And that was something that each word in that statement was imbued with meaning and it was all developed, not just thrown out and here it is. It was actually um, developed with our teams sort of as a, uh, a serial rollout, you know, kind of a concentric circles of, of getting feedback and, and, and feedback and, and evolution about what each word meant. And, uh, you know, so I could go. I could probably talk for an hour just about that, that, and what you know, where it came from, and what it meant. But it wasn't. Um, it was very much something that was. Uh, it meant something to the team. It meant something because they were they were shareholders in that in that concept. Um, and then you know, right, there's a whole bunch of tactical tactical things I could go into about 
communication systems and structures and systems. And I, I love working with entrepreneurs about on those kinds of things because those are, it's kind of the secret sauce that helps you to grow and uh, continue to deliver your products at excellence and reach more customers and scale things up. And it's not always intuitive what, uh, what those things might be, but sometimes it's helpful to have somebody on your, on your team that can pattern match a bit. But so, yeah, I think at the core of it was, you know, uh, respect. And, you know, we also talked a lot about humility and integrity, integrity for being able to take feedback and being open and honest with ourselves, uh, with external partners and humility, um, you know, sort of the internal expression of that integrity is the external expression of that. Right, right, right. And I think, um, the, more than anything, it's, it's, it's living it. You know, if you're going to ask someone to do something tough, um, try not to ask anyone to do anything you're not willing to do yourself. And so Greg and I would come and we would stay with the team when they're working late. We would sit in our office, play the games, enter bugs. We would attend the triage sessions and provide feedback and try and support them and try and understand. We, we did, um, open forum Q and a sessions with the teams as well. Like, and I tried to slice it different ways across, you know, teams, across disciplines, across uh, people hired in a given year and, and tried to create connections and, and, and hear what they're thinking and saying, and you get the best feedback from the people on your team as well. So you have to be a good listener. And I think a lot of these concepts I learned as a doctor, you know, good doctors listen well to the patients and they're empathetic and they consider the needs of all the stakeholders around them. They try and be good communicators. You know, you can't be a successful ER doc or in my, I'm as a country GP slash ER doc right. uh, without respecting the people on your team uh, at every level. You know, you have to have the pharmacists, you have the, um, the paramedics and the nurses and other doctors and specialists and referrals and, you know, family members and team and the patients. And, uh, you have to think of all of them as you make decisions and try and explain things in a way they'll understand and, and align with, because you can't force patients to do procedures or, or treatments. You have to, you have to make them understand, help them understand and help persuade them, you know, and those skills are translatable to, uh, to entrepreneurship, I think too. For sure. Yeah. No, I've heard that there's so many psychological dimensions to caregiving and it sounds like, yeah, there's some very applicable uh, lessons for uh, fostering a good workplace as well. Lifelong learning is really important too. I think that's, that's really vital for anybody nowadays in any role, especially entrepreneurs where you're, you're in the thick of it and you know, you're facing really tough decisions every day and you have to learn and grow as your company scales. You know, it's like the, the bus concept in good to great. You have to keep growing yourself as the bus moves forward. Otherwise you have to step aside and, and get other folks on the bus that can help you. But if you, if you're always willing to learn, you're always humble, willing to take feedback and um, you know, at least there's a good chance and you surround yourself with people who are smarter than you at every opportunity. Right, right. Gotcha. So you mentioned the acquisition and then Bio effectively becoming a, a subsidiary of EA. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about that acquisition. Like what were, I guess, what were the, the key drivers behind that decision? I'm sure financially there was one, but, I, but I'm, I'm sure there were others. Yeah. And it wasn't really the main driver. I mean, it was, we got offers throughout the process uh, of building a company up, you know, people kicking the tires or sometimes right. diving a little deeper and, you know, they were making serious offers um, for the, throughout the whole 20 year journey. Uh, we got our first external capital in 2005 from a private equity group called Elevation Partners. Really smart folks, uh, six general partners, and some really interesting people on that group. And uh, we learned a lot. You know, I grew a lot in those two years before we received an offer we couldn't refuse from EA. And it was a nice 3x multiple, you know, roughly over what the private equity valuation was. So they were happy in a short period, and we were happy. But it wasn't, like I said, it wasn't just the financial. It was also 
you know, certainly the liquidity for all of our shareholders, basically mm-hmm. our employees, was important. We wanted to make sure they had felt like they had a chance to, to capitalize on all the hard work they put in for many years. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, it allowed us to expand our reach. And that was why we got the private equity financing in the first place, was to try and become uh, something bigger. You know, we, we became uh, a publisher. Uh, we became a, uh, we, we got to develop new IP. We set up new locations. Uh, so I, when I was part of EA, I was managing eight, eight development locations, uh, and, and including um, a CS center, a customer support and operations center in Galway, Ireland. So there's uh, Montreal, Edmonton, Sacramento, Los Angeles, uh, uh, San Francisco, Austin, Texas, and Fairfax, Virginia. And Very cool. uh, you know, the, a, the A merger allowed us to actually expand the reach, um, get more talent in, create more opportunities for growth and leadership roles for our, our teams so they didn't feel like they had to leave. They could actually stay within Bioware and EA if they wanted to try new things and try new places to live. And uh, yeah, it was good for them, a whole bunch of different dimensions. I think that was that was the, really the driving force was allow us to do new things and make new kinds of games like the MMO that we built in Austin, for example, a very expensive um, difficult undertaking and being part of a larger entity was uh, would make that more feasible and lower the risk. Right. And, and sorry, was that Mass Effect or was that a different MMO? Oh, that was uh, Star Wars The Old Republic. Gotcha. Cool. Mass Effect was one of the IPs, the science fiction IP and the Dragon Age and you know, many, many other games we developed over the years um, across the, the Bioware uh, label. Gotcha. Um, specifically about, uh, about Knights of the Old Republic, um, I, I was interested to see what that licensing agreement, or, or if, and I hope I hope I'm characterizing that correctly, but it was with Lucas Arts, if I, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah. I'd love to get a perspective of, of like how does that happen? Like how do you uh, approach you know a major brand like Star Wars and say, hey, listen, we have this concept for a game, or did they approach you? Or um, yeah, well, I mean, the the, the the game you referenced was the first one. That okay, back, uh, it was Xbox PC back in 2001 or two or something like that, I think, and. Uh, and actually, that one they approached us. Uh, so the president of LucasArts kind of cold called or cold emailed us, and uh, you know, at that, that time we actually had some opportunities for for other IPs we were looking at. We, you know, build our own IPs. We also were looking at a whole bunch of major, like these are the big brand name IPs you you know, like in the films. There's still big ones today, and uh, and we we were we had serious expressions of interest from a number of uh, parties. And uh, so when we got this call, uh, we. You know, we went and talked to our team, you know, so, I mean, the opportunities <laughs> are, these are the IPs, you know, and here's some other ones. Oh, and there's one more we just heard about today. You know, we wrote Star Wars. <laughs> and, uh, and everybody was like, no. And it's, it, it was the first role-playing game in the Star Wars universe. They'd never made one before. Right. And they reached out to us because they, they thought we could be the best development partner in the world for them. And that was a you know, huge honor, and we're huge fans of that universe. So it was, uh, it was an easy, it was an easy, uh, question to, to say yes to. Then the negotiations are more complex, of course, because they're not, a, um, I mean, they, they understand, I think, the value of their IP. Right. And, um, you know, whenever you're negotiating with savvy partners, um, they're going to drive a hard deal, you know, so uh, it took a while to get that negotiated, but it was a, it was a great learning process for me. I mean, uh, that, and working with Microsoft and Atari and, you know, a bunch of other great partners over the years, uh, uh, it, was, it was a good growth opportunity. Gotcha. But yeah, it wasn't it wasn't a slam dunk, I guess, to get the deal done, but uh, but it certainly uh, you know did get done and released a, uh, what people still say is one of the best uh, Star Wars games uh, ever made, which was uh, you know uh, really good for the team, really good for the fans. For sure. Um, that yeah, no, it's a super interesting story. So so you mentioned a few games, uh, Star Wars, or pardon me, Knights of the Old Republic being one. 
um, Boulder's Gate. Uh, when you reflect back on your career at BioWare, was there any game or any time period specifically that you sort of reflect upon most positively? I loved all of them. Like they were like they were like children, you know. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like every single one, um, I have special memories of, and in different ways, you know. And I think it's really interesting when you look at look at a team, regardless of the genre or, or the industry. Uh, could be video games, could be like product development, uh, an enterprise company, or whatever. I think you can trace back, you know, the evolution of their of their learning and experience through every single product. And you can definitely do that with Bioware games. You can see how each one led to the next. You know, we advanced things in the characters and the story and the way dialogue flowed and the way the world building worked um, and the graphics and you name it, you know, across the board. And internal behind the scenes, like analytics and the way we communicated with our community and things like that, they all advanced each time we, we did something. And because because we had the continuity, because we respected our team and, and took pains to, to make sure that we retained the people that we could, um, we were able to build on that knowledge and continually grow and, and uh, make each game better than the last. All right. Interesting. Um, so, uh, so in 2012 is when uh, you had decided to leave Bioware and start Threshold Impact. Um, yeah. I, I guess my question is, after, you know, you, had, you achieved so many milestones, so much success with Bioware. What, what was the decision what, what, and why, why was it time sort of to leave the video game industry and start um, entering the world of, of angel investing? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, we've been at doing it for a long time. Both Greg and I actually came to the same decision within a week of each other in parallel without talking wow. the other. And then we kind of decided to do it. And we said, hey, by the way, I got something to tell you. Well, I got something to tell you, too. Um, I think we've been thinking about it for a few months. And it's maybe even a few years, uh, kind of realizing that, you know, at some point we're going to we want to do different things. We, you know, our earnout was uh, a couple of years and we stayed for five, you know, and, and tried to set up the team and um, the division within EA to be successful long term. And I felt that the leadership um, around me and my team was ready to take on the new challenges, you know, so they were ready to step up and advance. And so that was a big part of it. I wanted to give them an opportunity. You know, on a personal level, I was getting kind of bored, I guess. Uh, it wasn't, it wasn't challenging. It wasn't fun or interesting it was in many ways but it it was also very much getting to be the same thing over and over again right um, you know different products different uh technology different but it was still video games and um you know running a, a publishing division was a really interesting challenge it was great to be part of a public company and learn kind of what kind of systems and structures companies that are thinking of going public would want to put in place financial controls and you know, uh, communication, HR, things like that, that actually allow them to be effective right. um, as they make that transition. So I'm really glad we did it. Really glad in, in, also in the sense that our team got liquidity and they got new you know, benefits and they got opportunities that wouldn't have, wouldn't have been possible otherwise. But on a personal level, I was just kind of ready to do something different, I guess. Um, and I don't tend to put a lot of thought into transitions. I just, you know, reach a conclusion and then I just, it happens very quickly for me uh, for some reason. So I kind of think I decided to retire when I was on holiday with my wife. I just wrote the retirement letter and I was just done, you know, mentally give six months notice or transition. I, did, I didn't know what I was going to do exactly. So I was kind of thinking about, you know, what I could do. I was a member of a group called YPO, Young Presidents Organization. For sure. Yeah, yeah. So I, so I flew up to, uh, they had a social enterprise conference, a one-day conference in London, England. So I just did a day trip. I flew out like, you know, on one day and I stayed for a day and I flew back the next day just on a whim. And in that one day, I decided that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be a social enterprise impact angel investor, you know, and at least for the next while. And uh, 
you know, try and invest in companies that are great financial return, but also great social returns for the world. And that could be in health and medicine. It could be in education, environment, uh, minority rights, agriculture. It could be in a whole bunch of different categories. But, you know, ideally the areas where I can add value as a, as a former entrepreneur, as a former doctor, um, and, um, you know, try and help the teams de-risk some of the areas and be an active advisor with all the teams I've invested in. And since then, I've invested in, I think, last count was something like 26 teams across 14 or 15 cities, and I've got a bunch more in the queue. So you know, a, lot of the, a lot of the great teams at a CDL I'm actually looking at now, it's been a fantastic opportunity to, to meet and learn from great mentors and great entrepreneurs, and certainly the, the deal flow that results is really high quality just because the quality of the entrepreneurs is so high. Right, right. No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to hear that. First question I had um, was today, do you, do you have any relationship now with EA or Biro or is that, um, is it more sort of informal? Uh, yeah. Not informal, no. Right. no. I mean, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not involved in the company at all. I, when I retired in October 2012, uh, uh, that was after six months of uh, giving notice for six months. And they tried to talk me out of it for a while, but then they realized I was pretty set in it. So, right. you know, like, uh, and then I moved on. And uh, now it's just friendship, you know, like I'm, now I'm a fan again. Like I'm enjoying games <laughs> totally. because uh, I get to play them for fun. Whereas I used to, I used to play. You know, you gotta eat your own dog food, and so I, I really believe that entrepreneurs need to really be, you know, passionate and focused about uh, understanding their competitors. So I played everything, whether it was good or bad or ugly. Um, and you know, obviously I wanted to play the good games, but forced myself to play some of the ones that were not as good just to understand what 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 it was that made them. Um, you know, not not succeed in the market, and uh, now I get to play just the good ones. So <laughs> that's awesome. a lot of fun uh, as a fan again. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So you mentioned uh, with with threshold impact. Uh, you know, obviously uh, you're in a position to provide so much value to an early stage entrepreneur. Very specifically, where do you find for you know a pre seed seed stage entrepreneur? Where do you find you've been able to provide the most value for those folks? Uh, I, I like all stages of companies. It's uh, you know I, I tend to invest pre uh, Series A, but I've invested alongside some VCs too. Right. And, um, you know, the, the, the pre-seed or the seed rounds are kind of more where typically I would invest. But, but um, yeah, I, I actually like helping entrepreneurs long term. I like to be an active participant with them on the journey. I don't expect any formal role or anything. I'm on a few advisory boards. I'm on a, form, a few boards. So, you know, if they want to, me to do something like that, I'm certainly willing to entertain it, um, time permitting. But, but on every team I work with, I'm, I'm willing to and, and, and definitely do um, take time when they need uh, feedback or advice on different topics like financing, how do you, what kind of things do we need to get in place to get a venture capital round going? Or you know, how do we structure a bridge round? Uh, how do we do marketing? How do we do financials? Uh, how do we grow? How do, what's organizational behavior, structures and systems and, and uh, you know, hiring practices? What, how do we make that work? Analytics and user interface design. Uh, if it's a software company, that's something I try and be an active uh, user of their product, For sure. feedback whenever they want. Um, you know, just general, just general advice. If they need a sounding board, someone that's uh, that's been there before and understands the stress of being an entrepreneur, um, I try and be empathetic to that and try and help them if I can. And um, yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's actually something I really love. I love the the energy that I get from working with entrepreneurs. For sure. So for me, mentoring and investing, and it's just like I don't know. The more I just keep taking on more and more, I just find it really fun. No, that makes sense. It's it's a good segue, actually. It's, you know, it's funny. I having worked with quite a few founders within our, within the CDL network, there's definitely this notion of uh, burnout would be a really pointed way of putting it. When I look at your career, it just seems that you've been able to have a lot of balance in some ways. And maybe that's just something from reading online that's, that's maybe that's inaccurate, but I'm interested to get your perspective on that. But from, you know, 
investing, creating world-class video games, medical career, photographer, poker player. Is that something that's, you know, you've been able to strike naturally, or is that something you work hard to cultivate and something at all that you communicate with founders is something that's important to actually, you know, running a good business? I think you go a little nuts if you don't have some outlets, you know, for, for taking time off and spending time with your family and relaxing a little bit. Uh, I'm, I'm guilty of being um, kind of a workaholic, I think, you know, for most of my career. Medical school, at least back in the, you know, the 80s and 90s when I was going to school and doing residency, um, it's a little bit like boot camp, you know, and, and that uh, it, it was really, there were no constraints on the number of hours you worked or anything. They put some in now, which is, I think is a good thing because there, there are times when my, myself and my fellow interns and residents were all pretty tired and, uh, you know, you still had to keep working despite that. Um, but, you know, I think that kind of moving from that immediately into entrepreneurship, for me, there was no governor on on anything. I worked, you know, Baldur's Gate, I was the producer and I worked 24-7 for, I think, three years, um, it, you know, pretty much, you know, along with all my team, right? So right. Uh, it was it was a really long, tough slog. We all knew that the company's future depended on the success of that game. Uh, and I think out of that, I game became more aware of the need of for work-life balance for myself and for team members. You know, I wasn't married at that time, but I got married after that. And, and I think uh, it became clear to me that, you know, you, you have to invest in your family as well. Um, you know, so it's, uh, I think it's something that entrepreneurs, it's early startup entrepreneurs will struggle with. And the ones who are successful long-term, um, finding some kind of balance is really important while still, you know, naturally everything they're doing is going to be invested in that, in that product, that entity, that, that, uh, that business. Uh, I think it's very natural and normal for that, but I think you have to find outlets as well. I, I wouldn't say that it came naturally to me. Right. I, I think a lot of it came probably after I left Bioware Yay, you know, and that's after 20 years of being in the business and, you know, uh, overlapping a decade with being a doctor before that, where I was working pretty much, you know, nonstop in the country as a country GP, ER doc. Um, so I think, you know, I'm in a point in my career i have the luxury of being able to have that balance and, right right right. You know, but uh maybe a bit of wisdom now to, to help entrepreneurs find ways to achieve some of that balance even as they throw themselves you know body and soul into their businesses gotcha no that's fair um you mentioned with threshold that you're not necessarily focused on a specific category um we're generally interested at sort of the intersection of profitability and social impact i'm curious though is, is are there any specific problems that are at the forefront of your attention right now yeah, I mean, it has gravitated more to biomed tech. So, uh, you know, medical innovations in software, hardware, personalized health and wellness, fitness, um, you know, a whole bunch of different uh, aspects of that. And, and biotech as well. I've really come to love that a lot, uh, partly because of the biomed tech stream in CDL West, actually. It's been really, really interesting. And um, I, I, my medical background kind of, I have the understanding. I don't pretend to be a deep, uh, really a deep subject matter expert. At, at medicine, well, really anything. I just, I kind of joke, uh, I'm a country GP. I don't know much about anything, <laughs> but I, you know, I know a little bit about a lot of things. So, um, and I like that. I like being a generalist. So uh, where I invest, I, I like look for teams where I can add value. You know, it's, a, it's either a specific thing, like they're making a software um, interface for medical applications, B2C or B2B2C, and uh, I can help them with user interface design or give them feedback on that, or they're struggling with rapid growth. And I've been there, you know, Bioware grew pretty rapidly um, for a number of years in a row. So we had to, you know, think about a lot about how do you modify structures and systems to, to allow for that growth, growth at high quality, maintaining your culture. And um, 
uh, you know, so the medical is one aspect. And, and certainly I look for every company I invest in, I, I try and look for some kind of social understanding or social aspect that can benefit um, the world, you know, people or animals, the environment you know, or education or you know, a whole bunch of different categories. Med tech, I think, is one I'm, I'm spending more time on. It's a natural fit for me. For sure. And it's also sort of uh, you get some synergy through if you invest in a lot of teams that are doing similar things. You get to understand the payers and the providers. You get to understand the regulatory challenges. You get to understand uh, some of the challenges around finding paying customers, distribution, and sales. And um, so I, I'm finding that really fun right now, sort of focusing a little more on that space. But I'm certainly open to other types of social entrepreneurs as well. For sure. Yeah. No, I, and even myself, the more exposure I've had for to biometech founders and biometech concepts, they have rich social impact. Um, and I think just the time you are with, with other emerging technologies, they're pretty cool business opportunities. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the neat thing, too, is it's from a business opportunity, people are always going to want to be healthy and they're always want to, you know, avoid um, being sick, you know, they, they, and they always want to live longer and they always want to be fit and they want to be happy and they want, you know, all these aspects. We are humans and I think there's always going to be a need for, for good healthcare products and there's a lot of uh, inefficiencies in some some spaces. You know, the, the U.S. market is a natural fit in many ways because it's got a lot of inefficiencies that innovations uh, can help ameliorate. Which is, you know, the social aspect is helping people be healthier. And uh, you know, if it also reduces costs and drives revenues, well, then it's a good business too. For sure. Cool. Well, well Ray, uh, I want to be respectful of your time. I definitely want to thank you for taking time today and, and more generally for participating in our CDL community. I personally feel very privileged, and I know our whole team does, to work with, with individuals like yourself. I want to put it to you, though. If, is there anything you want an ask of, of the CDL community or, or anything you want to, to leave us with? Well, I'm, I mean, for me, it's a huge honor. Like, I feel humbled to be at the table uh, with the people who are there because I learned something every single session from the entrepreneurs, from the other mentors, from the CDL team. Um, it's a really well-structured program. I would recommend it heartily to any entrepreneur that's looking for, you know, uh, some, you know, the great mentorship, um, you know, helping you drive forward in a, in a way that's very supportive and, you know, really honest. And I think that's, that's, the, that's the real strength of it is you have people that have experience there. Uh, the, the thing I'm excited about in the future is just seeing the changes in the last year uh, the the, the uh, network effect that's re really being built, you know, with the super session, with uh, deal flow being shared between different uh, teams, with mentors actually moving teams back and forth to to where there's an aligned group of mentors. You know, I'm in three sessions uh, in uh, CDO West and in CDO Rockies. I'm looking at uh, maybe Toronto Health next year as well. And, uh, I, you know, just that, that network effect together uh, across the entire country and, and with entrepreneurs coming from the states and mentors coming from the states as well we can achieve something pretty amazing and i think for sure it, it, the acceleration effect of uh, of this program is just i think it's just starting so it feels like it's just starting to gain gain momentum and it's already doing a really impressive thing so i i'm just really humbled and honored to be part of it awesome no i that, that means a lot right yeah and i, and I think I definitely can share that sentiment. Our whole team is very excited. I think there's there's still a lot of growth to become. Sounds like you might be a, in the CDL addict category with Barney here pretty soon. <laughs> I, uh, I, that resonated with me, yeah. I think Chen, Chen's the one that said that. But yeah. Oh, was it Chen? Okay. Maybe Barney said it too, actually. They probably, I think both of them are, for sure. Yeah. And frankly, I, I look up to both of them and I respect them and many other mentors uh, in the program that are uh, doing some great things. At the end of the day, we're volunteers. We're here to help the entrepreneurs. So. Um, that just seeing the entrepreneurs succeed is uh, it's really fulfilling for sure 
Thanks again, Ray. I really appreciate it. I know our whole team is looking forward to seeing you in Toronto in just, just over a few weeks here. I can't wait. Yeah, for sure. Cool. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me on the blog. I really appreciate it. Of course. Thanks, Ray. Cheers. Cool. Thanks, John.